Welcome to Understand Murdoch, a podcast from the Post and Courier, South Carolina's largest newspaper. Our award-winning reporters have spent more than a year digging into the Murdoch saga to bring you the latest news and in-depth analysis as we cover the story of drugs, deceit, and death in South Carolina's rural low country. I'm Glenn Smith, editor of the newspaper's Watchdog and Public Service team, and I'm here with Avery Wilkes, an investigative reporter who has been covering this Murdoch case with me for well over a year now. Hey there. So you, you've you been following different aspects of this case uh, almost from the beginning, as we just said. And what you've tried to do along the way is is give some insight and, and introduce people to, to the folks who are driving this case in different parts, whether it be judges or prosecutors or defense attorneys or, or whoever. Recently, you had this story on Dick Harpoolian and Jim Griffin, these two super well-known criminal defense attorneys. But maybe, you know, we've known of their reputation, but maybe we didn't know all that much about them. First off, can you bring us up to speed on Harpoolian and Griffin and their careers to date? Sure. They are both seasoned, highly respected, prominent Columbia trial lawyers with, between them, hundreds of trials under their belt already. Harputlian is 74. He actually turned 74 on the first day of the trial. Uh, Griffin is 60. They are both former prosecutors. Harputlian started his career as a state prosecutor, ultimately became the elected solicitor of the Fifth Circuit, which is in Columbia. That's the same position that Alec Murdoch's father, grandfather, and great-grandfather held in the 14th Circuit. And then Harputlian moved on to private practice, uh, working in criminal defense and civil litigation. Griffin was a law clerk for a federal judge before he joined the U.S. Attorney's Office for South Carolina in the early 1990s as a federal prosecutor. And he mostly handled white collar crime. Uh, Griffin has also been working part time recently as a state prosecutor. And a few years ago, he helped First Circuit solicitor David Pascoe with our uh, statehouse corruption probe here in South Carolina, which ensnared a, a number of high profile state lawmakers. Uh, but, but nowadays, both of these guys are known as criminal defense attorneys and civil trial lawyers, and they're, they're known as some of the very best at what they do in South Carolina. Harputlian is, is more experienced in violent crime cases in state court. He's handled more than 100 murder cases, and that includes 15 death penalty trials. And he's, he's really at home uh, in front of a jury in, in state court. Griffin, on the other hand, specializes more in white collar criminal defense work, uh, public corruption. He's got a client roster that includes accused fraudsters and con men, business executives and uh, allegedly corrupt public officials. And he also he tends to operate a lot more in, in federal court. Um, both are also very accomplished attorneys in civil litigation. They've extracted hundreds of millions of dollars in verdicts and settlements on behalf of their plaintiffs uh, over the past few decades. Harputlian, in particular, is known for suing government agencies and uh, winning big verdicts on behalf of plaintiffs and taxpayers. And uh, Griffin, notably, is leading the legal challenge to Attorney General Alan Wilson's decision to award $75 million in legal fees to a pair of outside law firms. And that was a controversial move in part because one of the two firms getting that big chunk of money is the, the law firm that Alan Wilson used to work at. Uh, and that money's coming from a $600 million high profile uh, legal settlement that the state reached 
with the federal government over its failure to remove toxic nuclear waste from the Savannah River site. So, you know, given these two guys, uh, you know, areas of expertise, this is kind of seen as a, a bit of a dream team for Murdoch, given that, uh, you know, he is facing such a wide array of, of criminality, including white collar crimes, financial crimes, and obviously a, a very violent crime here with the double murder. And, and one of the reasons, right? I mean, that they're considered this dream team is because they they're, they're kind of powers there. They they complement each other. I think uh, Harpoolian is seen as kind of the sh- the cunning showman, the guy in the courtroom who who has that gotcha moment. Where Griffin is sort of this methodical grinder who goes through the documents and, and finds those little nuggets, right? I mean, they they just sort of play off each other's strengths. They do. They complement each other's strengths. They've worked together a great deal in the past, uh, both in in criminal defense work and in civil litigation. They refer cases to each other. Uh, they know each other very well, and so. It, again, it's not to say that either one of them couldn't handle a case like this on their own and, and do a, an admirable job. At, by all accounts, they could, but they are very good when they work together because they know each other's strengths and they also know how to divvy up the work to to emphasize those strengths. And Harpoolian is not just a prominent trial lawyer, right? He's also a state senator and a big player in the state Democratic Party. That's right. And we didn't get into that too much in the profile just because it was already a long enough story. And, uh, you know, we had to stick to the legal stuff. But that's right. He, he is a state senator and has been since 2018. He's a two time state Democratic Party chairman. Uh, he was obviously the elected as a Democrat Fifth Circuit solicitor in the 90s. Uh, and he's played a big role in presidential politics here in South Carolina. Obviously, we have the first in the South. Uh, Democratic primary. And, and so he's, you know, he's been able to jump on early s- some of these campaigns and establish himself as a player in na- national politics. Notably, he was a very early supporter of Barack Obama's presidential campaign during the primary uh, in 2008. Uh, there are pictures in Harpootlian's downtown Columbia law office uh, with him and, and Presidents Bill Clinton, Barack Obama and Joe Biden. Biden is a personal friend of Harpootlian's. Uh, and Biden also appointed Harputlian's wife as U.S. ambassador to Slovenia. So he kind of has this whole other life that we weren't really able to get into in the profile. But, uh, you know, and he's also someone who's very difficult to profile because everyone already feels like they know him because he's been such a big player on the national stage. But, um, you know, I, I wanted to try to tell stories about his legal career and, and why he's considered such a good lawyer and and, and why he was really the, sort of the first choice for Alec uh, Murdoch when his family got into legal trouble back in 2019. Yeah, in a lot of ways, he's such an outspoken guy and such a colorful figure that some people tend to overlook all the success he's had in the courtroom and, and the legal skills he brings there. Uh, so this story was part of a series of profiles we've been writing about key players in the Murdoch trial. As you mentioned, you profiled the state's lead prosecutor, Creighton Waters, You and I wrote about the ethical concerns and questions surrounding 14th Circuit Judge Carmen Mullen. We also recently wrote about Curtis Smith, Murdoch's alleged accomplice in various drug trafficking, money laundering, and insurance fraud schemes. And our former colleague, Jennifer Barry Hawes, wrote an excellent profile on Judge Clifton Newman that we covered on the podcast recently. So how'd you go about writing and reporting this piece on Harpoolian and Griffin? 
Yeah, just like the Creighton Waters profile, I worked on this in the background for a couple months. Uh, I knew I wanted to write this profile eventually, uh, but but it, it took a while because I ended up talking to a lot of people. Uh, and just like the Waters profile, I did what I always do when I'm profiling someone, which is to, to read basically every single story that's ever been written about them. And that took a really long time on this story, because as we mentioned, Harputlian has been very politically active for a long time, and there's a whole lot of news stories about him. Um, but, but that really helped me to develop some new ideas and some new sources to call. And it also showed me some of the cases that they've handled in the past where they, they did a good job or, or cases that have um, you know, eerie similarities to, to the Murdoch case. Uh, and also, as I was working on this story, on, on, this, you know, on all these stories, I've when I would talk to people, talk to lawyers and various sources, I would ask them about Harputlian and Griffin. You know, I knew that they were these high-powered, prominent trial attorneys and that Harputlian has, again, this whole other life as a democratic power broker. But I wanted this preview uh, for our readers to be about what the two might look like in the courtroom, given that this case is going to be nationally broadcast on court TV uh, and, and what they might do uh, in, in this defense. And so everybody I spoke with, which wound up being nearly two dozen people, I would ask them for for stories about them in the courtroom. And of course, everyone gives you the classic, you know, the stories I have about Dick are, are not for print. Uh, and obviously he's this bombastic character and known for his quick wit and his acid tongue and his profanity. <laughs> but I really push people to give me some concrete examples and anecdotes that illustrate why these two are considered such good lawyers. And unexpectedly, I also wound up getting interviews with both Harputlian and Griffin uh, separately at length and uh, got a lot of insight from them about why they went into the legal profession in the first place and wh also while, why they're willing to defend Alec Murdoch, who is someone many people all over the country desperately want found guilty. Uh, but, and so I've covered both of these guys for a while now, both while covering politics and, and while covering, you know, the justice system, but I still was able to learn a lot about them through this process. And your conversations with them came pretty late in the game, did they not? I mean, you'd already spent months looking through articles and talking to folks and it looked like there'd be no chance you could sit down with them because obviously they had this gigantic, trial to prepare for. And then out of the blue, I'm, you messaged me at night and you're like, oh my God, I just got this call. So yeah, it, it was, you know, I typically like to interview uh, the subject of the story when I'm doing a profile last, but I don't like to interview them quite as late as I did these two interviews. Uh, this was really cutting it close. Um, you know, we, we talked about doing interviews with, with them, but I was never able to set up a time and then it got to the point where it was almost so close to the trial that it would have been bad form for them to speak to me. <laughs> so um, narrow, you know, narrowly, we were able to, to work it in and they were really solid interviews. You know, they were they were fairly open and they, they wouldn't talk much about the substance of the case so close to the trial. But they they were willing to tell me about, you know, sort of their their origin stories as as lawyers and. Um, you know, some of their inspirations and uh, some of their favorite cases. And I, also it was helpful because I was able to fact check some of the, the tall tales I'd heard about them. And some of which uh, the ones that ended up in the, in the story turned out to be true. Yeah. So I, like you said, that both of these guys are pretty well known. And I, as I read and edited the story, I, I found myself reading a lot of anecdotes that I'd never heard before. Uh, so let's dive into that a little bit. 
You mentioned finding out about their legal origin stories. What did you learn about how Harpootlian got into the legal profession in the first place? Yeah, this was this was kind of a wild story I hadn't heard before, but he essentially applied to law school back in the late 1960s as he was graduating Clemson University merely as a way to avoid uh, the draft and avoid having to go fight in the war at Vietnam. He wasn't your your typical draft dodger. You know, his dad, uh, Harpootlian's father, had, had fought in World War II, but he did oppose uh, the, the conflict in Vietnam on, on philosophical reasons. He'd studied up on it a lot in college, and he didn't believe America should continue to be involved in that conflict. And so he was sort of looking for a way to, to not have to go. And uh, he thought if he could stay in school, um, you know, by going to graduate school, he, you know, that, that would be a good way to avoid the draft. It ultimately did not work. He, uh, even though he had applied and gotten accepted, he was still drafted. And ultimately the, the reason he didn't go to Vietnam is because he failed his military physical with a stomach ulcer. Uh, but he ended up staying in law school. He worked on the side as a investigative reporter in Columbia for a, an alt weekly called the Osceola. And he, you know, uh, continued to, uh, uh, you know, basically <laughs> write investigative stories, uh, anti-establishment stories with a with a liberal bent. Uh, it was one of the few newspapers in town that would criticize the University of South Carolina, for instance. Um, and so he sort of developed a name for himself a little bit in law school, even though, uh, you know, he wasn't that great of a student as he <laughs> as he described it to me. And, and so then right after law school, he, you know, uh, got a job at the Fifth Circuit Solicitor's Office and uh, wound up on his first day picking a jury for a murder trial. And as he described it to me, he, he realized right then and there how much he, he loved this. And he realized how much of a narcissist he is because he got to speak to a captivated audience of 12 people who couldn't leave no matter what he said. So, um, and from there, he really grew up in the courtroom and he tried tons of cases, you know, murder cases, uh, you know, sexual assault, um, drunken driving. He would even do, you know, as many as two trials in a single day. Obviously, back then, trials were not quite as complicated as they are now. You know, DNA evidence wasn't uh, wasn't a, as big a thing as it is now. And obviously, video evidence and all of that stuff just wasn't as ubiquitous. So you could really, uh, you could handle a trial and a bunch of trials much more quickly. So he learned a lot of uh, life lessons and and legal lessons early on in his career. Learned about how to how to captivate and resonate with a jury, how to read a jury, how to cross examine witnesses and and lay traps for them. And um, so it, it was kind of interesting to to see all that, and especially given the context that there's so many questions about uh, the so-called experience mismatch in this case uh, on the state side. Creighton Waters, Don Zelinka. Those are very experienced attorneys, but they haven't done many jury trials and they haven't done many uh, murder trials. And this is an area where uh, Harpootlian really excels because he just did so many of them as he was growing up throughout his career. How about Griffin? Um, certainly the, the less bombastic of the two. Why did he uh, get into the law? Why did he pursue this career? He's not really someone who tells his life story to everyone or someone who wears his emotions on his sleeves, really. But it still struck me as odd that nobody, even his closest friends, seemed to know why he got into this business in the first place. 
So finally, as we mentioned, uh, I got him on the phone one evening and he told me this really meaningful story about what it was like to grow up in small town, South Carolina, in this upstate town of Pendleton, which has a population of less than 3,500. His dad was a town doctor. And if you grew up in a rural town like I did in, in Chester or like Griffin did in Pendleton, you know how much the townspeople love and appreciate the town doctor. So Griffin grew up accompanying his dad and carrying his medicine bag on house calls, which doctors did back in those days. And then he went off to Wake Forest University for college and he studied economics, not for any particular reason, but just because the subject came easily to him. But he didn't have any job prospects upon graduation, or at least he didn't like the ones that he did have. So he figured he needed an advanced degree and he applied to USC's law school to get one. And uh, he got admitted and he really excelled there. He was on the law review. Uh, and when he graduated, he was, uh, you know, at the top of his class. He got a job at the prestigious Nelson Mullins firm in downtown Columbia doing corporate litigation, but he didn't really love it. He didn't find it fulfilling. And he wasn't having that personal impact on people that his father had as a doctor. And so when his father was killed in a sudden and tragic car accident in 1988, that had a profound effect on Griffin. He saw the town of Pendleton really shut down to grieve. And he told me that the line to the funeral home for his father's services uh, circled around the block. And so Griffin was thinking to himself, you know, if I died tomorrow, who would care? And he worried that at the end of his career, the most consequential thing he might have accomplished is you know, saving some big company 50 cents on their stock price because he had won uh, a trial. And so he knew he needed to make a change. He clerked for about a year for a federal judge. And then he went on to become a federal prosecutor, uh, specifically dealing with, with white collar cases and uh, financial crimes. And then he went into private practice as a defense attorney. And one of the things that Griffin is known for is his personal touch. It's the relationships that he builds with his clients as he shepherds them through the legal process and, and the passion that he defends them with. And, and so it's obvious that, you know, that personal touch and that, that passion comes from, you know, that experience of, of losing his father, but seeing his father's impact on the town. Okay, so you, you hear from those two guys, but you also interviewed nearly two dozen people for this story. How did they describe Harpoolian and how did they describe Griffin? Everyone agrees that they're both brilliant, both very accomplished, uh, you know, both could probably handle this case on their own, but they obviously have different styles, uh, different ways of, of going about cases. Harpoolian is brash, aggressive, abrasive. He likes to create drama in the courtroom. He likes to lay traps for witnesses on the stand and create these gotcha moments that would fit really well into an episode of Law and & Order. And he also likes to play offense, even when he's technically the defense attorney. So I think at this trial, you're going to see him object a lot uh, and to try to throw the prosecution off balance and off, off rhythm, even if the objections don't get uh, sustained. He's going to take shot after shot at their case. He's going to mocks the state's prosecutors and the investigators and their theory of the case. He's going to try to get under their skin and, and try to throw them off their game and, and frustrate them. Griffin, on the other hand, is more even-tempered. He's almost reptilian and cold-blooded. He's pretty unflappable. He's really good at 
managing his emotions. And I, I was told that's really important in a jury trial because jurors are always watching the lawyers on both sides and they take cues from how the lawyers react when evidence is presented or when revelations are made in court. And, you know, if the lawyer looks deflated or surprised when something big happens, the jurors are going to notice that and it's going to affect their perception of the case. So I'm told, you know, Griffin's uh, ability to manage his emotions is, is definitely a strength of his. That's not to say that he never shows emotion. Uh, he can raise his voice and, and show passion when it suits him, but uh, it has to suit him. And, and he did that in one of the pretrial hearings when he was attacking the state's theory of Murdoch's alibi for the murders. Uh, and they were, you know, he was saying that the state is just trying to introduce these financial crimes and all this other criminality into this murder trial in an effort to bolster their their weak case that he committed the murders. And he was yelling, you know, he's a bad guy, Judge. He's a bad dude. And, and trying trying to show that that's what the state's case is and, and not that the financial crimes actually had anything to do with the double murders. So he is able to, you know, show some passion and, and be theatrical at times. But for the most part, that's probably going to be Harpootlian's tactic and Harpootlian's game in this trial. So, so as an editor, I'm always telling reporters uh, a, a good profile story or just about any story in general. Show me, don't tell me. You, you've told me a lot about this stuff and, and their background and how they could be uh, analyzed and dissected. Uh, but what really drives these things home, it really makes them, you know, relatable from a human perspective are, are the stories, the anecdotes that make up a person's life and, and really illustrate these tendencies. What are some of your favorite stories you heard about Harputlian throughout your reporting? There were a few, and sadly, there were also a few that didn't make it into the story uh, because at the end of the day, we had to fit it into a newspaper. But, um, you know, I really like some of the stories that I heard about how Harputlian would uh would, would create drama in the courtroom and how he would lay traps for witnesses. You know, I, I heard some of his former colleagues saying that sometimes when he would get up to cross-examine a witness, he would be asking this seemingly inane series of questions that didn't seem to go anywhere. Uh, and, and, and nobody in the room, and perhaps not even Harputlian, knew where he was going to end up with that line of questioning but then suddenly out of nowhere, he would he would zap the witness. You know, he would he would have them in the uh, he, he will have painted them into a corner without them even realizing it. And then he will, you know, expose them, you know, for lying on the stand or for covering something up. Uh, and so, you know, <laughs> so, I mean, one example of that is the civil case that I heard about where Harputlian was suing, uh, uh, I guess, someone who had been hurt at work uh, who had been hit or, or injured in a forklift accident. And so he was uh, cross-examining on the witness stand, the, the forklift driver and asking him, you know, did you get, what kind of training did you get? Did you get training on, on do, doing your job and, and safety, um, you know, before driving this, this piece of machinery? And the forklift driver said, yes. And Arputlian said, well, in your sworn deposition, you know, months ago, uh, you gave, an answer that was contrary to that. You said you hadn't gotten training. So are you lying then or are you lying now? <laughs> and I heard that the that the defendant or well that the, the, the witness just, you know, burst out in tears and said, I'm lying now. <laughs> and so the judge just stopped the trial and basically told the two sides uh, to settle. And, and they ultimately did. Um, so I heard a I heard a number of stories like that where 
you know, Harputlian is sort of an artist when he's cross-examining witnesses. Um, you know, there was another case I heard about where Harputlian was defending a, um, a guy in a criminal trial. And, you know, this is a classic defense lawyer tactic, but he had the, uh, the arresting officer, the accusing officer point out the defendant in the middle of the courtroom and said, you know, can you, can you point out, can you identify uh, the person who committed this crime? And so she looks at the defense table and she sees a guy that looks like the, uh, the defendant, but isn't the defendant. And she looks beyond him to the second row and she sees the defendant and she says, it's that guy. And she realizes, you know, this guy's trying to trick me. Harputlian's trying to trick me. And she thought she had outsmarted him. But actually, uh, the, the real defendant was sitting in the back of the room. And so Harputlian actually had tricked her. He did what he described to me as the double switcheroo. And, uh, and so the guy at the defense table was actually the defendant's brother. And the guy sitting in the second row who she identified as the defendant was the defendant's cousin. Uh, and so that, that case got dismissed because the, uh, you know, the arresting officer could not actually identify who had supposedly committed that crime. So there were, you know, countless cases like that where Harputlian sort of snatched victory from the jaws of defeat or, you know, leverage some sort of legal trick in order to get a better outcome from, you know, for his client. And, you know, there were, there were tons more that, that uh, we didn't actually, you know, get into the story just for matter of space. But, um, you know, th those are always fun to hear whenever you're in the course of reporting a profile. And it's the only sad thing is when you're trying to figure out which stories are going to make it in or which aren't. Well, what about Griffin? What'd you hear about him? Yeah, there, there were a few stories about Griffin that really stood out. One of them was the 2014 corruption trial of former South Carolina State University board chairman, Jonathan Pinson. Pinson was facing more than 50 federal charges, uh, racketeering, corruption, um, you know, all kinds of uh, charges, essentially alleging that he tried to use his public position for personal gain. And Jim Griffin took the case and he you know, was a, a really strong defender of, of Penson. And he threw basically everything in the defense lawyer playbook at the government during that trial. He slammed the government's uh, witnesses, you know, guys who were co-defendants of, of Penson and who had pleaded guilty and agreed to testify against Penson in exchange for more lenient sentences. You know, he exclaimed to the jury that the government has embraced criminals in this case, and they've embraced guys with no souls. Uh, he tried to, you know, leverage the rules of evidence to exclude a bunch of evidence collected via wiretaps of Penson, um, saying that investigators had misled a judge in order to obtain permission for those wiretaps. They listened to calls much longer than they should have. And they had listened to calls between Penson and his attorney who that, that should have been legally privileged. Um, and, and he was actually able to create, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of other factors in, in that case that helped get Penson a, a lighter sentence. Yeah. So the, the most generous offer that the, the federal government, government gave Penson was was 10 years in prison. And he actually wound up at sentencing. And uh, after an appeal, uh, Penson only got four years. And then he actually served less than that be, because of COVID. So uh, that, that was actually a, a pretty good outcome that Griffin was able to get in that case. 
Um, and and at, on the way, uh, on, on, you know, while leaving court, uh, Griffin said he overheard the FBI agents who worked the case complaining and grumbling and saying, you know, why did we why did we go through all this if all we, all it was going to be was four years? And so he he sort of chuckled to himself. And you know, for him, for a defense attorney, that's a big win. Um, and my other story that I really enjoyed uh, finding out about was uh, the federal trial of a South Carolina-based company and its owners who made a device called the Quadro Tracker. And the Quadro Tracker, from what I was told, started out as this little quirky device that could detect golf balls, supposedly. Uh, so if you lost your golf ball you know, on the course or in the woods somewhere, you could uh, you know, grab this little device and it had a little antenna on it, and it would it would literally point in the direction of, of, of the ball. Ultimately, though, the owners started selling it as a way to detect pretty much anything, uh, including animals, uh, other humans, drugs, weapons. And so naturally, they sold it all over the country to law enforcement agencies and schools. And, uh, you know, one agency in Texas bought it and I guess didn't like their uh, weren't satisfied with it. And so the FBI ends up getting involved and they, they ran the quadro tracker through a bunch of, uh, you know, a battery of tests and essentially determined that it, it didn't work. It was a fraudulent product. So the federal government slaps a bunch of fraud charges on this company and they were super confident about uh, winning a conviction. And the company hired former federal prosecutor John Simmons, as well as Jim Griffin. And they went to Beaumont, Texas to defend the case. And, you know, they tried to open up plea negotiations. And they said that the prosecutors basically laughed them out of the room. They saw it as such an open and shut case. Uh, but then they actually went to trial and, and Griffin had lined up a whole list of people from all over the country who had bought the quad tracker and quadro tracker and they used it and they really liked it and they thought it worked great. And so he was able to create doubt that this, this product was phony uh, simply because he, he was willing to do the work to go and find these people. Many of them, you know, crackpots, you know, <laughs> people who, who may not have known what they were talking about. But uh, at the end of the day, the, the jury was not convinced that this product was fraudulent. Um, I don't believe the project itself is, is still in operation or, or that it's sold here in um, in America anymore. But Griffin did tell me that they still sell and use it in Iran. So, so the Quadro Tracker still lives on in part probably because of this trial. Wow, that's great. Well, thanks, Avery. We appreciate you coming on and sharing all that. Yeah, I'll, of course. Always, Always great to be here. Okay, that's all for now. As always, stay tuned with The Post and Courier for the latest updates in this case. You can follow us on Twitter at Post and Courier. You can find all of our latest coverage on our Murdoch landing page, postandcourier.com slash Murdoch. We would love if you could send us questions, feedback, and tips to our Murdoch email address. That's Murdoch at postandcourier.com. And please also take a minute to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you like the show. Till next time, have a great day.